even though I can't read the Hebrew original, I, I can read the guys who can read it. And they say there's stylistic differences, which doesn't mean it's impossible that Jeremiah wrote it, but it is possible that maybe Baruch or someone else did. But I'll tell you what's notable about Jeremiah chapter 52 is nearly every verse of this chapter is a fulfilled prophecy. What Jeremiah announced was coming and was coming and was coming all throughout the book is now fulfilled here in chapter 52. What we're going to take a look at tonight is the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of Judah. And Jeremiah, for 40 years, warned the people of Judah and the citizens of Jerusalem, you got to repent, you got to get right with God, or the judgment's going to come. And then there came a tipping point where the judgment was inevitable, that there was no amount of repentance that could stop the judgment. They just had to prepare themselves for the judgment to come. And so Jeremiah counseled them, surrender to the Babylonians, don't resist them, surrender, submit yourself to God's judgment. Almost universally, they did not listen to Jeremiah. They did not listen to the voice of God through this prophet. So let's take a look now, starting at verse 1. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of of Libna. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, till he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. 2 Kings chapter 25 explains that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in one of his successive invasions of Judah... This is one thing that we're just reminding ourselves of through our 30 studies through the book of Jeremiah. We're reminding ourselves of the fact that Judah and Jerusalem were not conquered in one invasion by the Babylonians, but in successive invasions, really three of them in total. And in one of the early invasions of Nebuchadnezzar, he set young Zedekiah on the throne of Judah as a puppet king after Jehoiakim rebelled against him. 2 Kings chapter 25 tells us that Zedekiah's name was originally Mataniah and that Nebuchadnezzar changed his name to Zedekiah. I find this fascinating, number one, because when you can change somebody's name, that's like a mark of ownership. Nebuchadnezzar says, what's your name? Mataniah. No, it's not. Now your name's Zedekiah. That's interesting. But the second interesting thing is, Nebuchadnezzar gave him a name that means this. The name Zedekiah means, the Lord is righteous. I don't know why exactly Nebuchadnezzar gave him that name. But the righteousness of Yahweh was about to be seen in the judgment that was going to come upon Jerusalem. You see, Zedekiah had a chance. Maybe he could forestall or at least lessen the judgment of God if he led the people of God in true repentance and turning back to the Lord. But he didn't. Look at what verse 2 says. It says, he also did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now again, 2 Chronicles chapter 36 tells us more of the evil of Zedekiah, specifically 
His evil was he did not listen to Jeremiah or other messengers of God. Instead, they mocked the prophets. They disregarded the message of God. It's something that we've said many times, but it bears repeating. We often think that our problem or the problem of people around us is their sin. Do you understand that sin is easy for God to deal with? They say he paid the price at the cross. Every sin you've ever committed, past, present, or future, God has made provision and atonement for it by the perfect work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Because on him, all of the shame, all of the guilt, all of the, 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 the judgment our sin deserved was put upon the Son of God. The sin problem is easily solved at the cross. Not, not cheaply solved, it costs Jesus everything. Not cheaply solved, but easily solved. God's made provision for that. No, the real problem with humanity is not so much sin, although you could say it's a specific kind of sin. The sin that does not listen to God. If we will but listen to God, then when you do sin, you can be corrected and and follow the right path and go the way the Lord wants you to go. But do you see that if a man or a woman will not listen to God, what can God do with them? All that awaits is judgment. And that's what happened to Zedekiah. Again, as explained in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. So what was the end result of it? Look at it there in verse 33, or verse 3. He finally cast them out from his presence. Notice that word, finally. God's patience and his long-suffering finally ran its course and he allowed, no, you could say he even prompted the Babylonian armies to come against the capital city of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah and conquer them. Now, we pick this up from the English translations, but apparently it's even more present in the Hebrew original. That the words of Jeremiah chapter 52 are written in a very flat, emotionless tone. It's almost like, and the news report today, Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. It's almost strange because the book of Lamentations, which immediately follows Jeremiah, it's the next book in the Bible, the next chapter, it's a flood of tears. You almost have a sense that in Jeremiah chapter 52, the prophet inspired by God is just saying, I got to hold it together. I got to report the facts. Here it is. I'm trying to be very dispassionate. Again, I like what Alexander McLaren says. He says, the book of Lamentations weeps and sobs with the grief of the devout Jew but the historian smothers feelings while he's telling of God's righteous judgment. There's something eerie in the flat, dispassionate tone of Jeremiah chapter 52. Now, if we take a look again at verse 3, it says that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Jeremiah tells us that 
in the days of Zedekiah, there were many false prophets that came to Zedekiah. You see, this was Zedekiah's great problem. He wouldn't listen to the true prophets, but he would listen to the false prophets. And what did the false prophets say? The false prophets came to King Zedekiah and they said, listen, Zedekiah, rebel against the king of Babylon. God is with you. Jeremiah was saying, no, don't you rebel against him. God has appointed Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment over you. You need to submit to God's judgment, not fight against it. But he listened to the false prophets and he rebelled against the king of Babylon. Therefore, therefore, an even worse devastation came upon them. Just an example of this, in Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, it tells us that Jeremiah clearly told Zedekiah that he would not succeed in his judgment against Babylon. What did Zedekiah do? He arrested Jeremiah and he imprisoned him. But, much to Jeremiah's credit, the prophet stayed absolutely faithful to the message that God gave him to deliver. So what happened when Zedekiah um, rebelled against the king of Babylon? Look at verse 4. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, By the fourth month on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Verse four says, they built a siege wall against it all around. In the flat, dispassionate tone of Jeremiah chapter 52, they set up a siege wall all around. Do you know what a siege wall was? It was an impenetrable defense encircling the city so that nothing could come in or go out. And basically, the conquerors stayed outside the siege walls, made sure nobody came in and went out, and they starved the city to death. Sometimes it would take months. Sometimes it would take years. But they would just wait them out. And the people in the city desperately hoped that the people conducting the siege would give up before they starved to death. It was a horrible way to die. It was a horrible way to conduct warfare. Now I want you to think about this. This final siege of Jerusalem is such an important event in the Bible that it is recorded four separate times. There are not many events that are recorded four separate times, but you'll find it in 2 Kings 25, in 2 Chronicles 36, in Jeremiah chapter 39, and in this very passage, Jeremiah chapter 52. Four separate times in the scriptures, it records the siege and the fall of Jerusalem. And what happens? Famine. Verse 6, the famine had become so severe in the city. And again, that's the intended goal of a siege. And it indicates that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were at the point of victory over Jerusalem. They're almost going to starve to death. The people in the city know it. There's one last chance for a breakout. Maybe they can burst through the siege lines and escape. Maybe they can save their lives. It was 18 months of agony in this siege. And they describe it in three verses. The flat monotone there. Now verse 7. 
Then the city wall was broken through and all the men of war fled and out of the gate of the city at night by the way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden. Even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around and they went out by the way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and they overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And he killed all the princes of Judah in Riblah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah. And all. Then the king of Babylon bound him in brown's fetters, took him to Babylon, and put him in prison until the day of his death. After 18 months of agonizing siege, the Babylonians finally worked through a weak point in the walls of Jerusalem and broke through. The news spread quickly across the city. They've broken through. They've broken through. The Babylonian soldiers are going to start jumping. And they've been waiting 18 months to get their hands on this city. Can you imagine the pillage that's going to take place in there? They've broken through. The Babylonians are pouring in. The soldiers are coming in. The the, the news goes to King Zedekiah. Zedekiah, what are you going to do? He's going, escape plan. And they put into place, I don't know, escape plan Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Escape plan Alpha. Let's do that. And what they do, they make their way through a certain passageway. It describes it for us there in the verses. They make their way. The city wall was broken through. They make their way out and they escape through. Look at it. It says they, they, they went out. They made it through. They escaped out of the city and they made their way to the plains. And then they're thinking, we got it. We're home free. They're out of the hills of Jerusalem. They're down on the plains going towards the Dead Sea. We've made it. We've made it. We've escaped. We've run for our lives. Ha ha, Jeremiah. You said I was going to be judged. You were wrong, Jeremiah. Then what happens? Look at verse 8. The army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. I just think of King Zedekiah. He escapes. And look, the distance from Jerusalem to the plains of Jericho is fairly considerable. I mean, you're talking about maybe 15 miles. So, I mean, it's, it's a long thing. If you've made it out that far from Jerusalem, you've got good reason to believe you're home free. And all you got to do is get across the Jordan and you're doing pretty good. And you're thinking, I've made it. The finish line is almost in sight. I'm going to make it. I'm going to escape the judgment of God that Jeremiah prophesied against me. And then you look over your shoulder and what is it? You think it's the Babylonian army. It's not. It's the judgment of God coming to get you. And at the plains of Jericho, they put their hand on Zedekiah. Isn't it interesting that it was at the plains of Jericho that Israel crossed over the Jordan and came into the promised land. It was at the plains of Jericho that they had their first victory in the promised land. And it's at the plains of Jericho where their last king suffers his most disgraceful capture. It's like a bookend, a beginning and an end right there at the plains of Jericho. Verse 10. 
Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah. Now the Babylonians were rough people. They, they weren't known to be as cruel as the Assyrians who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel about 135 years earlier. The Assyrians were infamous in ancient history for their cruelty. I mean, just torture was on their mind all the time. But the Babylonians weren't as bad as the Assyrians, but they were rough people. You want to know how rough? This is what they do to the rebel king Zedekiah. They bring his sons before him and they murder his sons right before his eyes and then they gouge out the eyes of Zedekiah so that the last thing he ever saw was his sons die by the sword right in front of his face. That's, um, that's a unique brand of cruelty, but it also fulfilled the mysterious promise that God made through Ezekiel concerning Zedekiah shortly before the fall of Jerusalem. This is what Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13 says. He says, I will also spread my net over him, that means Zedekiah, and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. Like, what? You're going to bring him to Babylon, and he's going to die there, but he's never going to see it? Oh, yeah, because his eyes were gouged out before he ever made it to Babylon. I want you to think of this. How long had Zedekiah been spiritually blind before he was ever physically blind? You know, um, we, we need to think about it, that there is a realm of the spirit that we are often ignorant of. And just as much as we have physical senses that make us interact with the material world, you have a sense of touch, you have a sense of smell, a sense of taste, Uh, of course, eyesight, hearing. These are senses that help you to interact with the material world. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there's a spiritual world that we live in as well. Are you aware of that? I, I, I think that it is a master strategy of the devil to get us to ignore the spiritual world, to live as if the material world is all there is. But let me tell you something. The spiritual world is more real than the material world. There's going to come a day when the material world passes away, but the spiritual world will remain. We think of the spiritual world as being not quite real, It's out there some way. Is it real? Is it not? I really don't know. But this is real. Ladies and gentlemen, the things of the Spirit are more real. And Zedekiah was blind spiritually long before he was blind physically. I can't get that picture out of my mind. Zedekiah racing on a horse or a chariot across the plain of Jericho thinking, I've done it. I've beat God. I've I've shown Jeremiah was wrong in all those prophecies. But friends, do you know, do you really appreciate it? You'll never win when you fight against God. There's Broadway musical years ago and I I never saw a thing. I couldn't tell you a single song from it. I just know the title of it because it's a great title. Your arms are too short to box with God. 
And that's it, isn't it? You want to box with God? You don't have the reach. You just don't. I, I guess what I'm just trying to say is there needs to be a way that we give up our foolish resistance of God. Why do we resist him? And so we'll just surrender to him and understand that his word is true. Well, verse 12 continues it on. Sorry, it's not such a cheery chapter. Um, Verse 12. Now in the fifth month on the 10th day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned down the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem all around. Solomon's great temple, that amazing temple that Solomon built, that temple that had the Shekinah glory of God descend upon it as a cloud, that temple at which the altar there was lit from fire that came from heaven, that temple was now burned by a pagan king and his army. You know, they trusted in the temple. They said, man, God's good with us. We got the temple. Lord, we're good. We got the temple. You're not going to let your temple go into pagan hands. God says, forget about the temple. I'm bigger than the temple. My judgment can come even upon the temple. And so it says right there in verse 13, he burned the house of the Lord with fire. And then verse 14, he broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. The walls of Jerusalem, the physical security of the city, they were now destroyed. Jerusalem was no longer a place of safety and security. Those walls would remain a ruin until they were rebuilt by the returning exiles in the days of Nehemiah. Now some 70 years later, after the temple was burned, Ezra would come back with Zerubbabel and rebuild the temple. But it would take some 40 years after that until the walls were rebuilt around the city of Jerusalem. Both the temple and the walls were completely destroyed. Verse 15. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poor people, the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the craftsmen. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers, the bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord, and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. They also took away all the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the bowls, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered. The basins, the fire pans, the bowls, the pots, the lampstands, the spoons, and the cups, whatever was solid gold and whatever was solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea, and the twelve bronze bowls which were under it, and the carts which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord. The bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. Now concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits. A measuring line of 12 cubits could measure its circumference. And the thickness was four fingers. It was hollow. A capital of bronze was on it. And the height of one capital was five cubits. With a network and pomegranates all around the capital, all of bronze. The second pillar with pomegranates was the same. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. All the pomegranates all around the network were one 
hundred. Now again, what I want to understand here is we read this and it's this utterly dispassionate inventory. It's as if the writer's there with a clipboard. Yeah, we measured the uh, pillars that were pried away from the temple of the Lord, uh, all the gold cups, uh, all the pomegranates, 100 pomegranates. Did you count that? Yeah, 100 pomegranates. What they're talking about is ornate decorations in the shape of pomegranates that adorn the temple and the pillars around it. And they're just taking inventory here. This is everything that was destroyed. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm reading too much in it. But when I contrast this with what comes in Lamentations, Lamentations is an unreserved cry fest. It's a, it's a four Kleenex box book. Just, just weeping all the way through. What you have here is the dispassionate telling of it all. Uh, they carried away the captive, the rest of the people who remained in the city. Okay, every person who remained in the city except the poorest and most wretched of the land. The, the, the biggest losers they left behind. But anybody who could do anything, they carried off captive to Babylon. And then all the, anything that was worth anything, they despoiled the city and particularly the temple of anything that had value and they carried it away. It's listed so dispassionately. Every life that walked the path from Jerusalem to Babylon was filled with almost unmeasurable pain and sorrow. Every pomegranate, every golden cup told a story that's almost so great that the author can't even go there. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of something that we need to remember all the time in the church. You, you meet people. You speak with them on a Wednesday night like this. We love getting together. Hi. How are you? What's going on? Sometimes we meet people for the first time. You, oh, so happy you're here tonight. And we are. It's wonderful when you come. But you know what I, I try to remember? I don't always remember it. But try to remember, you never know what that person has been through and what they're living with right now. You never know the pain they carry. You never know the burden that they drag along. Now, knowing it should make us filled with greater love and compassion and sometimes just kindness towards one another. Years ago, when I directed a Bible college in Germany, for seven years I lived in Germany and directed a small international Bible college there. And at the beginning of the semester, we'd have the students get up and just say, hi, you know, my name's this and that. And I, I never forget, one year we had a German girl stand up, and uh, she says hi, and in that kind of way that Germans are just so honest. She says, hi, my name's so-and-so. Yesterday, I was at the funeral of my fiance. You just think, 
We had no idea, none. Now, sometimes the answer is you need to open up your life a little bit to people who will care about you and pray for you and come with you to the throne of Jesus. Sometimes that's the answer. Sometimes the answer is just knowing even if other people don't know the pain you're carrying, God knows. I I can't get away from that line. I can't get away from that line in verse 15. Carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city. Every one of them is a life. Every one of them lived with pain and loss and catastrophe more than most of us, I won't say all of us, than most of us in this room will ever know. God, make us, make us filled with love and grace to those around us and strengthen those who carry these hidden pains and burdens of life. Verse 24. The captain of the guard took Sariah the chief priest and Zephaniah the second priest and three of the doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, seven men of the king's close associates who were found in the city. The principal scribe of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land were found in the midst of the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive in its own land. By the way, where it says struck them in those verses, verse 27, the implication, it's not entirely clear, but the implication from the Hebrews is that he tortured them. He tortured them and then killed them. All these leading officials of the city. Verse 27, thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. This was the land that God gave to his people. Centuries before in the days of Abraham, he swore a covenant to Abraham. I give it to you and to your covenant descendants. Here it is, Abraham. It is yours. And the tribes of Israel possessed that land for some 860 years from the time of Joshua to now this time of exile. It was about 860 years. They took it by faith. They took it by obedience to the Lord and now they lost it by idolatry and sin. You know those exciting chapters in Joshua where the people of God are moving ahead by faith. They're moving ahead by obedience. They're conquering the land in the name of the Lord. That's the good part. Here's the mere image of it. Through disobedience and unbelief, they're depopulated from the land, and it's all told in this dispassionate tone. Verse 28, these are the people who Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive in the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem, 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away the captains of the Jews, 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. That just seems like a pretty low number. Most people believe it described only a portion of the captives. Verse 31 Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, 
that Eval Morodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until until the day of his death, all the days of his life. So this man named Jehoiakim, he reigns over Judah for three months. Three months. And then he rebels against Babylon. He deposes them, puts King Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the one who was blinded. Jehoiakim was not blinded. But Jehoiakim went to Babylon as a prisoner. Zedekiah went to Babylon as a prisoner. Zedekiah died in the prison of Babylon. But Jehoiakim, once Nebuchadnezzar died, his successor showed kindness to Jehoiakim. Hey, uh, you used to be the king of Judah, didn't you? Well, I'm the king of Babylon. Why don't you come up out of prison? Let me give you some new clothes. I'll tell you what, you, you eat in my cafeteria now. You know, we're we're going to have a new setup. I'm going to make your life better. Verse 32 says, He spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat. This speaks of the small kindnesses and blessings of God, even in the worst circumstances. Judah was depopulated. The temple was burnt. The walls were destroyed. They were all exiled. And the king of Judah was still a prisoner in Babylon. Yet, he had better clothes and ate better food. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes we look for that glimmer of grace anywhere we can find it. Anywhere. And if God gives you the smallest glimmer of hope, you latch onto it and you say, thank you, Lord. Oh, by the way, did anybody notice in there, how long did it say that Jehoiakim was in prison? 37 years. 37 years. How long did he reign in his rebellious reign? Three months. 37 years for three months? Doesn't seem like a smart exchange, does it? But that's a penalty of sin, isn't it? And he stayed in that place until verse 31 says that he lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. You see, the idea of lifting up the head, it isn't literal. It's not like he picked up his head and lifted it up. It's that he lifted up his head. He gave a brighter countenance. He improved his life. He brought blessing. He made him more cheerful, more happy. This was small but beautiful evidence that God was not done blessing or restoring his people. And it was the foreshadowing. It was the first fruits of greater blessing to come. The good news is this, is that this kindness to Jehoiakim, it speaks of what God was going to do in allowing the people of Israel to go back into the land and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city walls and establish a presence there once again and be a coherent people in the land once again so that the Messiah could come forth from them. And he did. And God's plan marched forward. Well, um, I love the way it ends right there. 
Chapter 52 shows us that all those promises of judgment that Jeremiah pronounced were true. They all were fulfilled. But the foreshadowing of restoration at the end, you know what that shows us? It shows us that the promises of restoration that Jeremiah made, those were also true. Because don't forget, there's many, many beautiful promises of restoration to a repentant and regathered Israel made right there in the book of Jeremiah, including those glorious new covenant passages. Those are just as certain as the promises of judgment. Now, it's wrong to think that Jeremiah was completely ineffective or that he had no converts during his work of more than 40 years. Uh, One guy named Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, uh, that's of Jeremiah chapter 38 and 39. He seems to be one example, at least, of a man who was reached and transformed, or at least he was made strong by Jeremiah's work. Yet, there is no denying that for the most part, No one listened to Jeremiah and he definitely failed in his hoped desire to bring Judah and Jerusalem to repentance and to save them from judgment. None of that happened. I'm not going to say it was a failure, but surely his ministry was a disappointment. Yet nevertheless, Jeremiah stands through the centuries as a man who proclaimed God's standard and the importance of real repentance and real enduring relationship with God and not reliance upon ritual. You want to know how to prepare for judgment? How to prepare for impact coming? Real relationship with God rooted in real repentance before him. That's what Jerusalem failed to do. That's what Jeremiah preached. That's what we have to take away. Um, It's remarkable how people in our nation are very pessimistic about the future. Well, I don't know what the future holds, but I do know this. With true repentance and true relationship with God, you and I are ready for whatever the future brings. Father, thank you for the book of Jeremiah. Thank you, Lord, that it shows us that your word is true, that you are faithful to it, and that, Father, it is absolutely essential that we do not play games with you, that we do not uh, put our fingers in our ears when you speak, but rather, Lord, we keep a soft, repentant heart before you, that we listen to every word you say, and that we value real relationship with you, not mere ritual. Help us to do this, Lord, and to take away the enduring lessons of this book that means so much. We pray this, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.